0: Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation, what can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? Yvonne Sansino is one of the pioneers in the longevity space with a 40-year career focused on the financial, actuarial, and corporate sides of the aging equation. She's global co-leader of consulting firm Mercer's Next Stage Consulting Division and works with companies across the globe on developing longevity strategies around the future of work and seizing the opportunities of the longevity economy. She's the author of The New Rules of Living Longer, How to Survive Your Longer Life, and partners with the World Economic Forum on a working group called Retiring Retirement. She's not shy of sharing some uncomfortable but urgently necessary truths about money, aging, women, and pensions. Want a good idea of this current state of play on where companies stand? Listen up. So welcome, Yvonne Sonsino, to Four Quarter Lives. I'm delighted to have your very particular and deep understanding
1: of where companies stand on this question. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Aviva.
0: Now, you're a long-term expert in this space that many are sort of flooding into in the last few years. Can you share how you first got interested and involved in this whole longevity theme?
1: There were two things that triggered it for me. I came to studying later in life and I'm sure that's no no surprise to you in your situation, but I was doing a master's degree in my, my 40s psychology and it was a sort of very scientific psychology and I wrote my dissertation. I had two choices. I could do one on ageing or one on addiction. I found found them both absolutely fascinating. But for me, aging was the one I knew would happen to me. So I wanted to study on that. And I looked at The aging. You could have
0: opted for addiction, I (laughs) I guess, but I I think aging was a a healthier bet. (laughs) Yeah, so fatal, fatal, but healthy. (laughs)
1: uh, Absolutely. So I started to study the impact of aging on the hippocampus, which drives sort of sensory perception, spatial awareness. And and just found it fascinating. But the the second trigger was when in the UK, the default retirement age was abolished. So in effect, companies couldn't retire people at a certain age. What year was
0: that? When did they do
1: that? It's about eight or nine years ago now. Mm -hmm. And I was working in-house then, not in consulting, I was working in a financial services firm. And it actually meant for us that we had potentially two outcomes. We could be managing people that wanted to carry on working very, very late into their years and their experience may or may not have been desirable. So there was a challenge potentially with keeping people that we may or may not need as a business and no no recourse for that, which was very different for employers. Or it meant that people were going to retire early. And again, it might have been skills that we needed or didn't need in the business. And it gave us very little control over succession planning. So for companies, it became quite a challenge I just started to get interested in the impact and the implications of that and then ended up getting so deep into it, I wrote a book. And we are where we are. Called,
0: a book <laughs> called? Where uh, can we get it just so we include that in the show notes?
1: It's called The New Rules of Living Longer, How to Survive Your Longer Life. And if you Google the title, New Rules of Living Longer, you'll go straight to my website. It's much cheaper there than on Amazon. Lovely.
0: <laughs> Noted. So... We're, we're going to pull out uh, all your knowledge and experience of these years. You've seen this evolve quite a lot, right? So how would you evaluate what's the corporate lay of the land now in 2022? What, what evolution have we seen in companies' understanding and embracing of this longevity issue? And where do you think we stand today? And are we moving fast enough?
1: We're we're moving very fast at the moment. I'd say the last two years I've seen more progress than in the last ten put together. So I've got the
0: COVID effect?
1: It might well be. I've got some data on it. So two years ago in our global talent trend study, we saw around seventeen percent of companies offering some form of phased or flexible retirement program. And in this year's study, so two years later. The 17% has increased to 39%, so it's more than doubled. And that is serious acceleration to my mind. Is that
0: UK UK study?
1: No, it's global. Global. It's global. And we're working with companies all over the world to look at building these phased and flexible retirement programs. There's some really good models springing up. Some are... Public knowledge. So Unilever's you Work, for example, I think you've written yep. on this in an article. Yep. Uh, they're really creative new employment model where people go onto a new employment contract. So they they stay as a permanent employee, but they take up much more of a gig style contract role.
0: And yeah, they almost create an internal gig economy which gives people kind of security. It's almost like a Swedish model of work integrated into a single company.
1: Yeah, that's right. And they aimed it first and foremost at older workers to keep experience in the business. But what's happened as they've moved from pilot to pilot around the world, I think it's in about 10 countries now, about half of the people in it are older workers and the other half are younger people. So people who want to work more flexibly in their young days, either caring for children or studying or even having a job with another firm.
0: My constant argument that it's like millennials, perennials, the old folk and parents who are the three groups who all are hungry for this kind of flexibility and who now represent the vast majority of our workforces.
1: Exactly. It's been, you asked, is it COVID driven? I think it's partly COVID driven because people have become more used to working more flexibly in, in that sense I mean remote or hybrid working and it's become quite commonplace to do so but I think it's also been driven by skill shortages and that was happening anyway jobs are changing skill needs are changing and we've seen that that has really impacted on on labor labor forces We've seen the great resignation, the great retirement. So it's driving the labour pools down, shrinking them. And companies are certainly now coming to this with a much more keen appetite to embrace older workers as pools of good labour because they see experience there. They also see the the, the talent shortages and they're, they're really impinging on their ability to grow.
0: So the the responses are phased and f- more phasing and flexibility at the end. So a bit of career management, keeping and retaining older people longer and perhaps less intensively, depending on their needs. The other is this kind of gig economy internally. Unilever is the only company I've seen try that. Is there there's a lot of outsourcing of work that come. I mean, I heard that Google, half of their employees are actually contract
1: It's uh, Is that
0: another part mm. of the model that um, we're going to have two kinds of employees, one in, one out?
1: It's surprising how many companies have a high percentage of, of contract workers. In my experience, I won't name names, but for one particular company, we didn't actually know how many gig workers were in place. So we had to go around and count them. And it took a while to count them because they're not Did in they, every they day. Didn't
0: know, they didn't know either. Right? They
1: didn't know either. They're not really on the normal HR systems, yeah. but the actual balance was 50-50. So 50% permanent, 50% contractors. And it really distorts your company's overall cost of labour and payroll costs. And we are seeing a growth in gig style workers. And with that, we're also seeing more pressure, quite rightly so, for more protection for gig style workers who typically fall out of the the common protection programmes like pension, unemployment, sickness benefits. So, there's a lot out there in terms of the way employment models are changing. And they need to as well to be able to entice workers back in on their terms.
0: So any other big buckets of shifts? So so <laughs> flexibility at the end, gig all the way. Is, is there a review of the whole shape of what Career should look like I, you, and I have discussed a lot. That you know the traditional upper out linear rather masculine one track model of a successful career has been obsolete for quite some time. Is this the moment? Are we going to start imagining all those lattice careers and different ways of people working in a little less pressure in the first half of uh, career life?
1: We see now as a really good time to start looking at your employee value proposition, the EVP. And what I mean by that is the overall deal. And the deal is what you get as a worker. And that's made up of some quite quantitative elements like pay and benefits and training, etc. But it's also made up of things like well-being, career progression, purpose. And it's looking at that holistic. We're now calling this the total well-being at work. And more and more now, and our Global Talent Trends study backs this up, executives are wanting to look at that whole deal, the EVP, in a more holistic manner to make sure that all of the parts add up and that people can truly thrive. And there are no real weak links in that model even just being a, a non-purposeful organisation can really crush all of the good work in, in the other segments I mentioned. Or if your pay process is wrong, or if career progression doesn't work, or if you don't feel that sense of purpose, or you don't get that well-being and feeling cared for. So companies are now really... Reexamining this, and it is new. And for us as consultants, it's new. We're devising new models that are more appealing for employees, but that work for employers as well. It can't all be one sided. We've got to balance that employers need to get a job done, they need to drive their business forward. But that's much more now in partnership with employees and looking at this whole life experience and the, the deal as a holistic model. For the future.
0: So, just on you know, one of the beggar bears, and I'm sure this is not just a stereotype, it's, it's, re- it's reality, is that pay and age go hand in hand. And so, there's this huge pressure on companies who are cost cutting often and restructuring that anybody over 50 is going to be more expensive than anybody under 50. And so the pressure to get rid of, I mean, we just had that case of CTV news anchor in Canada who was let go with gray hair and and a very expensive package. It was probably more more the package than the hair that got her out. But are we going to change that? Are we going to see sort of salaries peak and then return to something lower? Are we able to accept that kind of thing? Or is that going to be sacrosanct?
1: The data shows that actually salaries peak somewhere in the 40s to 50s. And that has been true for many, 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 many years. And if you look at people who stay in the same job, they don't necessarily get paid more than younger people. So if they're in the same job, they plateau rather than peak, they plateau at 40 to 50. Actually, in some industries like the care industry, the plateau is even younger. It's about 30. Um, It's not not an industry. There's a lot of work needs to be done in terms of the deal for for care workers. That's another podcast in its own right. Yes, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that. But the fact is that companies who think that older workers are the most highly paid and we need to get rid of some of them because they're becoming less productive. We've spent a lot of time analysing that and and looking at the actual facts and data. I'm pleased to report that we've just released a really good piece of research, a meta-analysis of something like 22 companies, several million employees and data points that shows that actually... Age has nothing to do with productivity, doesn't matter if you're young, medium or old, productivity levels overall are around the same. But what does drive value in a company is experience. And that typically goes with older ages, not necessarily big older ages, but the more experience you have, that drives added value to the bottom line, regardless of the level of pay. So they're worth it, basically. People who are earning more with that experience, overall, they're worth it. They're adding value to your business. So any employer out there who's thinking of chopping heads to reduce costs, they need to think very carefully about that. I can send you the link to that piece of research. We will
0: be putting all of these reports that you're referring to into the show notes so people can track back to them. Okay. So that's a lot of change and a lot of very recent change. So things are bubbling along. You've been a big part of this change. You're partnering with the World Economic Forum with a working group on retiring retirement and the longevity economy. Can you share some of the themes and learnings from
1: that group? Yeah, absolutely. We've been very lucky to partner with the World Economic Forum on this. It started... Two and a half years ago, we were invited to run a session at Davos on redesigning retirement. And we ran a, a an innovative design thinking session with a really impressive group of people, chief executives, HR, specialists, actuaries, doctors, all sorts of professionals in the industry and looked at what retirement needs to how it needs to evolve to be fit for purpose going forward. And some of the outcomes from that, as you can imagine, were much more flexibility around work, much more care around financial education, because often people don't realise they're going to run out of money significantly sooner than they die. Research (laughs) shows we run out of money some 8 to 20 years before we die given. A it's a lot. lot. Yeah. It's worth for women, as you can imagine. Again, there's another podcast.
0: We'll come back to, we'll come back <laughs> to that
1: one. <laughs> there's another podcast there. We then decided that we'd take that research with the World Economic Forum on a regional level and explore the differences across Asia, Europe, the Americas. So that's what we did for the following year. We we went and researched the, the different regional outcomes the partnership now with the World Economic Forum has evolved. And this year, we're looking specifically at the longevity economy, financial resilience for all generations. And the direction that we're taking with this piece of research is to look at what people understand by longevity. So, longevity literacy. Do younger generations, for example, understand what it might mean to live to 110? What does that mean in terms of life cycle, career cycle, education cycles, family cycles. And And also what is the
0: awareness level?
1: We're about to to launch our research. So it'll be a digital focus group that will go out globally in the next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to seeing what the results will be. Other research in similar vein in the past by different organizations has shown that there's a divide and that people, there's a there's half a group that will put their head in the sand and just think, well, I've got enough to worry about today. I can't think that far ahead. And there's another group that are really quite thoughtful about this and realize that, well, I may never be able to give up work. I may have to work and work and work and work and never, ever have an opportunity to retire. And it's pretty depressing. So we, we want to help either group we want to help them understand what the facts are what the reality is what are the opportunities for you to to tackle this what education do you need what facts and data do you need what support will you need and just set out a framework in some survey findings and infographics and easy to read and disseminate articles to, to really just build awareness around the topics and make sure that people at least have some information to help structure their big decisions they take around their life stages.
0: So that brings me to my sort of next focus. We've been looking a lot at the corporate perspective. If we switch to the individual perspective... And some countries are eliminating the retirement age. Others in Europe are in the streets over this issue and, and really struggling even to nudge it upwards. Are people ready to keep working? What's the disconnect we're seeing between sort of this mass retirement we've seen during the pandemic and the need to plump up our pensions so we don't have that 8 to 20 year falling short on our finances before we die?
1: Again, the research shows it's half and half divide. About half people out there want to carry on working because they really enjoy it. There's another half of people out there don't want to carry on working, but they can't Is there afford. a segment, is there a
0: profile of the segmentation? Is it education versus not, is it?
1: It's mixed. mixed. Yeah, okay. it's, it's mixed. I think we are all very individual on this and mm-hmm. some people love their job and some people are very fit and able and some people find purpose and meaning in getting up and going to work. And they're the lucky ones actually who, who do enjoy it and want to carry on. Those that can't afford to retire, it's a very different story and the gap is so big the financing gap is so big we've got to make things easier for people to do that and I, the companies i've been working with and interviewing people one to one on this typically they want to reduce their hours so reducing to say 2 3 days a week having good support and backup you know good technology to help them work remotely if they can good opportunities to still access training and learning so that they keep their skills up to date they're worried about falling behind with their skills and just the support from their employer so carrying on with things like health insurances life insurance disability insurance and and being able to continue contributing to pension plans so that's what people are are looking for i mean i've just cut down to three days a week myself it's made a massive difference to my health I can sleep now seven or eight hours a night I've never slept really seven or eight hours a night it's amazing but there's other things that
0: you you waited a long time
1: (laughs) yeah I have 26 years of commuting four hours a day and sleeping five hours a night suddenly waking up to COVID and realizing that how long am I going to carry on doing that that's what happened for me. It really made me rethink. But on top of that, portfolio careers are interesting for people. And many of the people I've interviewed have either got aspirations to start their own business or volunteer or help care for family, grandparents or grandkids. Or do and, all of the above. Or do, uh, and yeah, I do <laughs> all of the above. And I've done that too. I helped run a business with my husband. I've just joined Helixia as a non-exec director. Helixia are looking to make better, longer lives. So it's a, a startup that will help people with the advice they need in this situation. And also volunteering and looking after grandkids and spending more time with my parents who've just turned 90. So we're all different. And... Having the opportunities to be able to make some choices, that choice and autonomy, I think, really gives people back some faction and happiness. And that's what it's all about.
0: So the individual is diverse, needs flexibility, kind of a menu of options that meet their needs. What what are the three most important things companies should start thinking about and putting into place?
1: The enlightened ones are already thinking about this. So, number one, I'd say flexible working, extending into retirement. So, just like we're currently working flexibly, just extend that into retirement. It doesn't have to be a big deal. cliff edge, not a cliff
0: edge, but a long tail. Yep.
1: Exactly. So, number one, flexible working, extending into retirement. Number two, I think really understand that experience and tenure add value to the bottom line. Don't just think about chopping off that older age group because you could be chopping off your lifeblood for business. And number three, this is the easiest one of all, just do the demographics for yourself. Where are your critical skills? How old are they? We've got a diagnostic tool that can help companies to do that and ask themselves the right questions. So again, I'll put the link in with the notes for that. It's just 15 questions and it, it will really, it's, it's sort of the checklist of things employers should be doing to understand the, the best way forward for them.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Nobody listening can say they didn't <laughs> hear it and were forewarned. Okay, now I want to move to a tricky topic that I know is of concern to both of us, is the issue of gender gaps in aging. And this is all over the map, from career issues to pension shortfalls. Give us the list and why they exist and what we're facing.
1: There are three main reasons for these huge gaps in gender pensions, and they are huge gaps on average across the OECD countries. It's about 27%. Women are 27% worse off than men. And in countries like the UK, where I am, and my daughters are, and my (laughs) mummies, it's over 40%. In 2022, I cannot believe it. I am on a mission like yourself, Aviva, to make people aware of this. But these they they're driven for, for all sorts of reasons. There's a lot comes from employment patterns. So women typically have a gender pay gap anyway women typically work more part-time hours so pension is linked to pay so if you're only earning shorter hours pay then your pension won't earn as much career gaps to have children or to care and all of those have a massive knock on impact on pensions then there's a whole raft of issues around pension plan design so for example some pensions pension plans they have certain thresholds of income before you're eligible. So, women working part-time or on low income won't even qualify to join them. At a technical level, the way actuaries calculate annuity rates, which means the the translation of your cash fund into pension, because women live longer, their pension actually comes out lower because you need more money to buy it for a longer life. And so
0: How
1: much uh, longer right now are women living than men, are we? Globally, we reckon six to seven years. The gap is narrowing in certain developed countries for certain health reasons, but it's still long enough. And often that means if if women, and I'm generalizing, women would typically marry older, slightly older men. Therefore, once the spouse has, has passed away, that means a woman is on her own for, for longer as well. And Trying it to It's a smaller for part of the
0: pension to a, exactly. a fraction of the pension.
1: Yeah.
0: We've been kind of debating this whole issue of pension design, that it was really designed in a time where there was a single bread earner and he, you know, he usually had the pension, got the pension, and his wife was sort of an ancillary recipient of it when he left and got a fraction of it as though her costs reduced dramatically just because she's one instead of two. Is there any place, country or company that is now totally adapting pension design to the reality of dual career couples and modern workforces and these different life expectancies that you're talking about?
1: Nobody's nailed it yet, but there's some positive moves in the right direction. So in some countries, there are good laws now protecting women on divorce and that women can access part of a male pension whilst they were together as part of a divorce settlement.
0: Yeah. Yes, because uh, our listeners should know, which is something nobody knows, is that in many countries, when you divorce, the pension is not part of the yeah. asset class that gets divided. Yeah,
1: it's huge. And it's often way more in value than your next biggest asset, which could be your property. Yeah. So I even had a conversation. Before about- <laughs> Before because Before you walk out
0: the door, check the ten pension
1: plan. Absolutely, because a friend of mine who's a lawyer who recently got divorced, didn't know this, and when she found out, and her husband was in a very pension plan, and it was worth more to her than the house. Yeah. so be yes, be warned because even even the the well informed don't always know about this. So some countries are moving in in the right direction in making protection for that. There are things like survivor pensions, so more and more information being made available about whether or not at retirement the male pension carries with it a survivor's pension. So, you, you know, a man can just draw ex-pension at retirement and not make any provision in there for it to reduce and continue being paid to spouse on death. So, that is something to look out for as well. But nobody's really nailed it yet. We, we've come up with this thought that actually some sort of nice family pension pot could be an answer. We've been trying to raise awareness of that as a concept. Again, with the World Economic Forum, that's something we've discussed. And a lot of the partner companies that join our meetings nod approvingly at this and think, yeah, okay. And they take that back to their countries and markets and industries. So we are spreading spreading the word on all of these factors that impact women's pensions and building awareness. And we've also created a checklist of things how to fit it. So, for example, at a government level, lack of affordable childcare could bridge, it is one of Absolutely. the obstacles here, and yeah. it could bridge these gaps that women face because of part-time or career gaps for, for caring for children. So, and I... recently elders. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's quite a simple thing to do. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, everything has a cost, but this will pay back in economic terms because it will get women back into the workforce. It will make them more self-sufficient in retirement. It might help our fertility
0: rates going through the floor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I would urge people to have a look at that article on how to fix the gender pension gap as well. We can put the link in the notes.
0: Huge one. Really important. Let's close that 26% gap, 27% gap. Yeah. Three things advice for women listening to this to better prepare their third and fourth oh.
1: quarters? <laughs> they might not like some if, if of we this look advice. backwards
0: what <laughs> would we have done differently
1: <laughs> they might not like some of this advice but this is good advice and I've been in this industry for 40 years the pensions industry this is my my life my my work my passion your tribe <laughs> yeah but number one be interested and knowledgeable about your financial situation. You know, so many women frown upon money's a dirty word, or, or if I get more money, it goes into the house, or for my family, or my children. You've got to be interested in yourself. We Take need a bit a, of
0: global therapy on this, right? A bit
1: of self-care, yeah. Understand what it might mean for you to run out of money 20 years before you die, which as a fact, will happen to women in Japan. So, women in Japan will run out of money on average 20 years before they die. That's not a good prospect. And we are smart enough to get interested in that. The second thing I'd say is look at the jobs that you're in and make sure they're on the right promotion trajectory. So, we know from a pay equity and progression and promotion that certain jobs are more likely to accrue better salaries and higher leadership potential so those jobs include roles that have p and l profit loss responsibilities roles that involve managing people or projects or teams roles that are in sales or frontline client facing
0: yeah, so' getting stuck in the in the staff and support functions
1: exactly yeah. And yeah. the third thing I'd say is improve your own health factors. We do live longer, but not always in good health. And the the research shows that our healthy life expectancy is declining with multiple chronic conditions occurring. And a lot of this can be prevented. So sure, maybe... i sure our listeners are
0: saying that this this is slightly contradictory, that they have to get the... You know, profit and loss, pressure, high pressure job while maintaining their health is still remains a conundrum, as, as you have just revealed about your own career. Four hours yeah. of commuting, these are, these are tough, tough, these, things
1: they to are tough. The circle. But improving your own health factors is something you can take control of. And, like I said, I don't think every woman's going to like my advice here, but I've just started teaching training for, to be a yoga teacher, I'm 61. And, you know, I'm in a group do. of 25, 25 women, mostly in their 20s, and I can do a headstand with the best of them. But it's about taking, taking these chances and risks and doing things that will improve your your own personal health.
0: Okay. Well, I'll let you know how popular that, that <laughs> list of recommendations went down. And I want to just conclude on... There seems to be a massive task you've been involved in for a long time on building awareness. And there seem to be a couple of different narrative strands to this longevity conversation. They were ranging from a whole group, you know, declaring ageism as the next ism, that we hate our future selves, that we really have to get over this last acceptable ism in the workplace. And then there's this whole other much more sort of positive opportunity, the longevity economy. How do you reconcile or do you walk in between? What, what's your frame?
1: For me, ageism and discrimination sicken me, sadly. So I have two big missions. I want to provide facts to dispel the myths. Yep. So older people are not washed up, they add value, experience and value adds value to the bottom line. And this one about the gender pension gap, I want to fix that. And I want that on my tombstone. So I'm busy engaging many women and many men and many companies around the world to help on that mission. And it's receiving very positive feedback. So being proactive.
0: Yvonne, thank you (laughs) for all you do and for the time you've just shared with us. I think that clarion call went out loud and clear and we'll all support you in both of those missions. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much
0: indeed. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries.